footballers' lives. Life After Football is brought to you by the Phoenix Sport and Media Group. Presented and produced by Richard Lenton. Hello everyone and welcome to Life After Football. Now I've met some fascinating characters while recording these two series of Footballers' Lives. But Ariane Dezieux, or Ari Dezieux as he was known in England, stands out among exalted company. And I love this chat because it combined my two big passions in life, which are sport and crime. And when I say crime, I don't mean committing them. I'm obsessed with detective work and forensic and solving crime, so I'm very jealous indeed that Ari has lived both of my dreams. Premier League footballer and then a seasoned detective out in Holland. Yes, not the normal career metamorphosis. Not only that, but he came close to becoming a fighter pilot when he was younger, and he also has a degree in medical science. Like I say, very, very interesting chap indeed. Now, Ari and I chatted over Zoom last week, but we were occasionally interrupted by his very lively puppy. I've been at work, and my uh, other half has been as well. So he's been he's been in the in the bench for a bit. And he's now ready to rumble. So um, I'm going to chuck some stuff every once in a while. I hope you don't mind. Oh, no, not at all. Not at all. And you've nipped off to get a cup of tea. After your yes. time in Barnsley, I'm assuming that's a cup of Yorkshire tea. Can you still get that? Uh, I can, but I won't. <laughs> I like I like my uh, ginger lemon tea. I've gone back to continental. I... <laughs> I was actually brought up in a village not too far from Barnsley, so uh, I was wondering how you settled in there. You can tell from what? the accent, you still got a bit of a northern twang. Still there, even though I've yeah. been down in Brighton on and off for 20 years. Oh, really? Seven years in Singapore as well. You'd think that it would uh, have gone away, wouldn't you? But no. It's good. It's a good sign. Stick to your roots. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You worked in Singapore as a journalist as well, or? I was TV presenter out in Singapore. I was presenting Premier League football. That's why you look so familiar. Oh, really? Oh, so you've seen some stuff out there. Your face looks familiar. Let me put it that way. I'm thinking, oh, it's got a familiar face. Well, well, maybe... well, some people say that on a very good day, I look like Jamie Redknapp, but on a very bad day, I look like Harry Redknapp. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish you the first. Eh? Jamie's a bit of a looker, but Harry isn't. No, you <laughs> he, know Harry. Even though he's, he's a fantastic guy. I, I had him as a manager uh, three years. I loved it. Yeah. 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 Well, funnily enough, I was speaking to Shaka Hislop last week, and I didn't realise that your paths had crossed at Portsmouth. And you obviously yeah. came from very similar backgrounds in a way. You came to professional football quite late. You both studied for a degree. So did you kind of gravitate towards each other? Yeah, we got on really well. We uh, sort of... Went out for meals together with the girls and uh, our kids played together and went to the same school. So we did, there's lots of contacts while we were there, yeah. It has diminished over time. I've spoken to him once or twice and he does a TV show now. Um, well, he did a few years ago. Um, but to be fair, like, like most contacts in football, they sort of they tend to fade away over time, which is a shame. But the funny thing is, uh, whenever you bump into each other again via Facebook or whatever, or on a uh, friendly match or whatever, it always seems to be like the old days. That's it. And that's what people can't understand, that it's such a transient career. 
that once someone's left to go to another club, you may have all the best intentions of staying in touch, but just it just doesn't happen. Um, you do initially, uh, but then you know you're so busy trying to settle in at a new club and trying to be part of the team, make new friends, and uh, costs a lot of energy. So you tend to forget about the older ones. The funny thing is, I think it, it the ones that stay are the ones that played together while they were still young. You know, in the academy and uh, it's sort of where the friendships are formed for life. Uh, yeah. I've still some some friends from football, but it's from the days before I turned professional. Um, you know, I still speak to them. I still go out for, for a drink every once in a while with them. But um, they're, they're football friends, football-related friends, but from uh, from my younger days. Yeah. And what, from when you were playing in the amateur leagues? Because I was going to ask you, about, right. obviously, you you initially opted to study for your medical science degree and play in the amateur leagues. Why were you reticent to give professional football a go or were the right opportunities not quite happening? That was the thing. Um, they were looking at me, but they were always a bit indecisive about me. So I could, while other players would get like a, a contract, I would get like travel expenses. Um, and, and I, you know, I was not uh, a bad student. Um, so, for me, there was no real urge to go and play professional before then. Uh, I never really got the right opportunity or I once got offered a contract, uh, just, it just didn't click really. The club and the manager didn't really click with me. Mm. Um, and during my, most of my sort of amateur life, um, I played, the, the amateur teams always played first team and I was regarded as a talent. But all the uh, the scouting teams, like the regional teams and the and the sort of northern part of Holland teams, I was always on the bench or I was uh, second pick. So I I never really realised I could actually have a career in professional football. So, okay. it so came very late for me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the same with Shaka as well, and his was. Um quite by chance really he just played in a friendly that I think uh, against Aston Villa but were you really into the idea of becoming or a doctor or a surgeon what was what was your medical yeah. science degree leading well, to? like every kid initially I wanted to be a, a, a fighter pilot or a professional football player and a fighter pilot fell off because I was uh, it turned out I had a sort of a deviation in color in the color spectrum so I struggled to see the different color shades between sort of red and greenish and brown and reddish. Uh, so I failed the medical for that. Even though I got quite far on the selection progress, I failed the medical. So I, I could never do that educational thing sort of thing. Um, and then I thought, well, you know, professional footballer is the other thing I'd love to do. But with that, I was always, for the, for the regional teams, I was usually second pick. So. After a while, you start thinking, well, maybe it's not for me. Uh, started studying medicine and really enjoyed the study. And then all of a sudden, uh, like a semi-professional team came, Telstar. Mm. Um, they had some full pros uh, and I was one of the semis, which I wanted to be. I could turn full pro, but I didn't want to because I could then go to university at the same time. Mm. So I studied in the morning and then got in my little car that I got from the club and then drove to uh, Telstar uh, and trained in the afternoon. And it was perfect. I was the best paid student in my year. Um, I dropped the other students off at the, uh, at the pub when I went training. 
uh, playing football. But I didn't have much time, you know, for student life. Uh, I hardly have any study friends because I was never there. I was either proper studying or playing football. Yeah. Um, hardly ever any time in the pub. Yeah. But having that kind of education background, that kind of sets you apart, certainly in England. Do you think young players in these academies and young pros and even older pros should be encouraged to pursue some sort of education? Or do you not think there's enough time? Is professional football too all-consuming? I don't... Yeah, there is enough time. Um, but the problem is with they're signing younger and younger now. And if you see the amount of work the kids do nowadays compared to what I used to do when I started playing football. You know, I worked for half a season. Now I'm doing my managing degree, um, coaching badges, as they call it in England. Um, and I did a six month at AZ Ogmar. Uh, and if you see how young the kids now are drafted for the academy and how much time they spend there, it's quite amazing that they have any time left to, to study. Um, even though the clubs do encourage it because they realize that uh, players with a higher education tend to be um, the, the, yeah, the more intelligent about football and about being in a team and about talking to the press and about um, sort of to have a, a broader view of life, let me put it that way. Uh, and it's, it puts them in, better, uh, in a better position to become a professional athlete yeah um, and then to also to be able to transition away from the game whether that's into media work like Shaka who I keep mentioning um, it, it just stands you in good stead doesn't it but yeah I mean when, when you did turn pro you were 22 um, how ambitious were you were you thinking I'm, I'm behind the eight ball here I'm 22 years old already or were you still really ambitious to get to the top I was 21 21. 21. I'll give you that. Uh, no, I, I was very ambitious in, in the sense that I, you know, I thought, wow, I got a shot now, so let's make the best of it. And the first game of the season, uh, I started on the bench and by luck, a player got an injury and he said, well, give it a go. Uh, and, then, uh, you know, that was the last time I was on the bench, um, which was, you know, I, I got my chance and I grabbed it. Uh, and from then on, I just wanted to be better every training and every game, but never really realized that I could actually make it into the Premier League. I mean, that was by no means anywhere in my sight. Hmm. Um, I thought, let's make the best of it. And if all else fails, you know, I'll become a doctor. It's not the worst job in the world. And it sort of put me in a, you know, more relaxed mode to deal with um, you know, setbacks and that kind of stuff. Um, I tried to do as good as I could and everybody has a bad game every once in a while. Everybody has a, a spell where he doesn't play as well as he wants to be. Um, and for me, it was more easy to handle them sort of situations. Knowing that, you know, if, if I don't make it as a player, um, I'll become a doctor. You know, I don't have to do anything I don't want to. I chose to be, to try and become a doctor. Uh, so it's still a great career opportunity. Um, so in a way, it, it helped me settle settle down. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I never thought of it like that before. That you could be more relaxed in terms of how you treat football, knowing that you've got that kind of kind of backup plan. But I did read that you were still pretty annoyed when 
Telstar turned that they uh, turned that offer down from Utrecht, was it? In yeah. Oh, yeah, but I think especially the Wade, because I went to Telstar for hardly, well, no fee whatsoever from the non-league. Um, I had a very... Nay, nay. Go and get... Sorry, it's chewing the cable of the computer. That's not a very good idea. Um, <laughs> this he, is your um, dog, by the way, just, uh, just for anyone listening. This is Iron's dog. Oh, sorry. Yeah, this is my uh, German, uh, Australian Shepherd. I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's causing mayhem in the background. Uh, he's still a puppy, but he's, uh, he's got lots of energy. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, now, I... Um, uh, where was I? God. He's completely... Utrecht. So I hardly cost any fee. And um, it was before the Bosman ruling. So Utrecht made it, made it quite a fair offer, really. Uh, for me and uh, Telsa just turned it down because they needed more money uh, they were struggling a bit financially and they're trying to get the most out of the deal which to, to a degree you understand uh, but for me it was the opportunity to go to the Dutch Premier League and you know that obviously wanted to take that chance I was not getting any younger um, I was 24 I think by then so this was my opportunity in Utrecht. If, if there's any club in Holland who is a, where the mentality is a bit like in England, it'd be FC Utrecht. Um, in what way? Uh, because the fans are very um, charismatic. Uh, they're very uh, attached to the club, very noisy. Uh, it's one of the few places that, uh, in Holland where the crowd really makes a difference. Uh, you know, their home ground, it's a tough team to beat at their place. Um, so yeah, it suited me down to a T really, uh, yeah. my, the way I like to play, you know, um, I like the physical approach, I like to work hard and sort of lead by example and, and Utrecht was one of them teams where they appreciate the hard work. Um, yeah. But Telstra turned it down, they wanted more money, they initially agreed on a feed and Telstra pulled out and wanted more and then Utrecht just blew the deal off uh, and for me that was I thought, right, that's it then. No Premier League football in Holland. Um, I'll have to focus on being coming a doctor because at Telstar, it's, it's a, it was a good club to start. Mm. It, it wasn't a team that you want to play for the rest of your career. You know, it was... Yeah. yeah. How do you say yeah. that? There was no real future at the club. Yeah, you, you didn't want to be there in your mid-twenties, but, but that move no. did, come, did come a year later, didn't it? And I, I think... You know, I've mentioned before that I was brought up not too far away from Barnsley, but how on earth does a Dutch centre-half end up in Barnsley? Good question. Uh, it, it was to do with, uh, there was a, an agent in Holland, uh, Humphrey Nijmon, uh, who's still sort of my agent now. Um, he saw me play a few times and he, he put a little note with me, like um, uh, English-style centre-half, um, and he, he sort of made a mental note and a little note in his book. And when Barnsley was looking around for a new centre half, he, uh, he more or less made contact with him and said, I think I've got somebody for you. I didn't know anything about that. Uh, so on a, I think a November evening, uh, we were playing a team uh, from the north part of Holland and they got a big centre forward. It was very good in the air. Uh, and I marked him and I just... Well, he didn't have a chance. He didn't win any headers. And obviously, an English team like Barnsley were watching the stand, and I didn't have a clue they were there. Um, but it was the perfect sort of game for them to see what I was like. 
And after that, it sort of spiraled. Um, they made contact through the agent. We had a chat in a, in a hotel in Amsterdam about who I was and if I could speak the language and that kind of stuff. And then the next day, they, they faxed over an offer and asked me to come for contract talks. Uh, so it happened within two days. Um, for me, that was obviously completely unexpected. Um, I was playing my last season at Telstra thinking, after this, I'm going to quit football. Um, but luckily, it turned out to be a little bit different. Yeah. The butterfly moments that we have in life. But how on earth did you get on with the accent in Barnsley? Because mine is very soft, my South Yorkshire accent, Arjun. It is proper in Barnsley. Yep. It, um, I didn't realise, initially when somebody, the first man I spoke to at the club, uh, Norman Rimington, who was sadly passed away. He was a uh, player, manager, physiotherapist, uh, everything down to Kitman when I got there. Uh, and he, he went, I walked in and he went, you bro. What he said? What he just said? I didn't have a clue. Uh, it took me quite a while before I'd, I sort of started realising uh, what they were saying. Um, you know, they swallow half the words and the rest they mumble. Uh, but it finally made sense. Uh, and I still, I still love the accent. Yeah, it's, it's very different. It's very yeah. different. But could you feel like it was a club on the up or was your timing about right? Because Danny Wilson was obviously that young, ambitious manager. Yeah, and well, you could tell with Danny, you know, obviously he told me what he, where he wanted to go with the club. Uh, and he'd noticed over the years that there were a few older lads who uh, were still the proper English football spirit. They would play hard and they would drink hard and would party hard. And, uh, and they were good players, like, but um, difficult, you know. If you, if you want to go up a league, if you want to win the league, you have to stay fit and focused. And uh, he knew we had to get rid of some players uh, and bring in some young kids uh, and maybe bring in some foreign uh, people, you know, mix up the, a little bit. Mm. Uh, and I was one of the foreigners, one of the first foreigners at Barnsley. And uh, he brought on quite a few young kids from the academy. Um, mm. And it turned out to be a good mixture. Uh, yeah. So players who had a, a kind of different attitude in terms of looking after themselves as well? Yeah, yeah. Less drinking, a little bit more football, let me put it that way. Um, you know, we had people like Lee Budlow, who was a fantastic guy. Uh, well, he was a complete nutcase. Um, Jerry Taggart, who I came for because he went to Bolton. You know, he, he drank harder than he played football sort of thing. Uh, even though, you know, when he was on the pitch, he'd give 100%. Uh, but he'd turn up training sessions. Uh, you know, he could smell the alcohol. Um, and then he knew he had to get rid of them players. Well, you know, sell them on or move them up and, and bring in some younger lads who would last the whole season and could play every game 100%. Yeah. And be fit. And it worked because, you, you know, you took that division by storm, didn't you? I, yeah, where Barnsley were no, no one thought in a million years Barnsley were going to get to the Premier League. Must yeah. have been an incredible season. That was a bit of a fairy tale season because, like you said, uh, start of the season we'd probably be more favoured to go down than to go up. Um, and we got, you know, I wasn't a very well-known player. Clint Marcel came from Trinidad and Tobago. Nobody had heard of him. Uh, and, and then he brought in some young kids: Andy Little, Nicky Eden, Eddie Moses. Kids who, you know, came through the ranks and mixed them up with some older lads. And, uh, yeah, it sort of clicked. You know, we had a good spirit. There was always banter in the dressing room in a positive way, not 
disrespecting people, but trying to, you know, have a good, good laugh with each other. Um, we got on well on and off the pitch, you know, uh, we'd go out for meals together. We'd have a, we'd have a beer on Saturday evening after the game together. Uh, but mainly we were focused on football and, uh, and Danny made sure we stayed that way and kept us with our feet on the ground the whole season, even, even though I think we were never far from promotion all season. Um, we started quite well and continued that throughout the season and maybe 10 games to go, people started to think, hmm, they could actually do it this season. Um, and you just saw the attendances rise and, you know, only once we reached promotion, people start believing it. You know, the, the, the scenes were, yeah, were ridiculous, crying people on the pitch and all that. You yeah. think big people, you know, with tattoos and mining beards and buddies and we're crying on the pitch because we got promotion and think, oh God, I think we've achieved something here. Yeah, no, that whole area needed a lift, a former mining town and it, it, it certainly got there. I remember seeing the pictures, Michael Parkinson and Dickie Bird in the stands and even when you were in the Premier League, it's not like you were cast adrift early. You had a go, didn't you, at, at survival? But yeah, did, you think, but... did you think you had any chance of staying up or was it just a free hit? I think we did, have, yeah, well, we, you know, we, had, we were a bit unlucky as well. We, we spent a lot of money on developing the club, you know, developing the new stand and developing the academy. That's where the club put a lot of their money that they gained. Uh, and they reserved a little bit for um, attracting new players. Hmm. Uh, and one of the major buys for us that season was a new striker, uh, Georgi Ristov. And he torn his crucia in pre-season. So he was a, a five million pound buy, I believe, a big signing of the season, who was going to get us goals, and uh, he got injured. So we missed him the whole season. Um, no, nay, sorry, two seconds. Before I have a dead dog who's chewing the cable. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, later on in in the season, obviously we got uh, obviously we got John Henry and Paul Wilkes, and uh, who were great buys, fantastic buys. Um, he got him in the promotion season. You know, we, they did well for us, but it was the Premiership was a lot higher pace, and even though we we tried to do our best, it, you know, we had such a small squad, uh, we were always going to be up against it. Hmm. Uh, but we gave it a go. We believed that we could uh, until we couldn't anymore at Leicester. Um, yeah. Until then, we always, you know, believed that we could stay in that division. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the other lads would have been like yourself if you rewound a few years and thought, you know, I'm, I'm never going to get to the Premier League. So it must have been an amazing experience. But was there any opportunities to leave in that summer for another Premier League side? Because you must have loved having that taste of it. Um, no, I was looking at, uh, obviously, I was looking at maybe moving to Scotland, there were some contacts there, um, but then Barnsley had the idea of going back into the Premiership and I had such a, you know, such a good time there and uh, John Henry was going to take over as new manager um, and I thought I'd give it a go for a season, see how it goes mm. uh, and, you know, if it doesn't work then I'll look elsewhere but at that moment, I, I loved my time at, uh, at Barnsley and the club had been good to me. So, I, you know, they asked me to stay and I thought, well, we'll try and get back straight back in. Yeah. 
So what was, the, what was the thought process then about dropping down into the third tier with Wigan? Because you were at that age where people say, oh, it's an athlete's peak year. Yeah. And all of a sudden you've had a taste of the Premier League and now you've dropped down to the third tier with Wigan. Yeah, that was never the intention. Um, I was very close to signing with Hards uh, in, uh, in Edinburgh. Um, and then I sort of got in contact via via with, with Wigan and they made, they made work of it. They sent over their plane, their private plane, to fly me up to Wigan for contract talks. Um, and, and the chairman, Mr. Whelan, he sort of made sure that, uh, that I signed. Uh, and not, not, not necessarily by the wages or anything he offered, even though I, I certainly made an improvement going there. So I dropped a league, but improved uh, quite a bit in, in wages. Um, but his plans that he had for the club, the new stadium he'd just built, we're playing Manchester United in, in an opening friendly. Um, you know, he, he sort of told me about his vision for the club and I, I'd experienced something similar at Barnsley, uh, a club that nobody expects does the unbelievable. Uh, and it's fantastic to be part of that. So I thought, mm, you know, this could be an adventure. Uh, I did give it a lot of thought because obviously it was Scottish Premier League or English Second Division at that stage. And I thought, wow. Uh, but eventually, um, the way he sort of told me about his vision and where he wanted to go with the club, I, uh, I bought it and signed for Wigan. Yeah. Yeah. And you had a couple of Wembley appearances with Wigan, didn't you? Just <laughs> yes, or annoyingly so, because it's it's bad enough. It's great going to Wembley, but the worst thing you can can happen to you is lose at Wembley, because that means you've lost the final, more or less. Um, yes, and we did that, shamingly so. Yeah, um, yeah, but we were always close to promotion. The the first few years I was at Wigan. Yeah. Um, but we never quite made it. And there was always something that blocked it, either our own mistakes or uh, a little bit of uh, unrest within the club. Yeah. Um, obviously, Mr. Whelan had a lot of power there. And if he didn't get along with the manager, you know, it was very easy for him to sack him. Uh, and in the first season, season and a half, you know, we kept changing managers. It's just ridiculous. So it was very hard to sort of get some kind of balance in the team if, if you keep sacking the manager. Um, I think he realised that when he, when he got hold of Paul Jewell and, uh, and kept him there, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you went back to play for Paul Jewell later, didn't you? But, you yeah. know, you're kind of early 30s after, after your spell at Wigan, and, but then Harry Redknapp comes along. Yeah, as he does. He rings you up and he goes, hey, it's Harry, Harry. <laughs> uh, okay. And it did sound familiar uh, by watching the uh, match of the day. Uh, so eventually it's Harry Redknapp and he just, you know, as he, as he does, he has a way with talking to people. Um, he said, listen, uh, I'm, with, I'm with Portsmouth. I'm going to build a new team. Uh, this year we just managed to avoid relegation, but next year we're going for promotion. Uh, you're one of the few I want to uh, get to the club and uh, it'd be fantastic if you want to sign for us. Um, and I was on my way to uh, on my holiday with the kids and the wife. Uh, so I said to him, so, so if you come down to London now, we can uh, start the negotiations. I went, well, I'm sort of currently just flying off for my holiday. If you want me to get divorced, then uh, I might want to go on holiday first. He went, right, okay. 
I'll talk to your agent and uh, when you come back, we'll do the deal. So I went on holiday thinking, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, and when I came back, he, I just more or less went straight down to London, had a chat with Harry and uh, his plans and uh, signed for Portsmouth, yeah. just like that. So it went pretty, pretty quick. Uh, for me, it, you know, it was the, the, the right time as well. And he, I think he knew that. I was getting a little bit older, played three years for Wigan, played yeah. well there, but, you know, just didn't manage to get the promotion we needed. Um, and then with Portsmouth and, and the players he was telling me he was going to get and the sort of change at the club he wanted to uh, start bringing, um, which he did. I mean, he started the season, I think, unbeaten and we more or less took it from there. I yeah. don't think we, we might have been second at one stage, but most of the time we were on top. Yeah, and it was a massive turnaround. I think he gave Paul Merson a big sales pitch as well, didn't he? He said, yeah, yeah. yeah Merce, Merce, we crap, to be honest. But you can, you can turn this around. You yeah. can inspire us. But that's, that's what he does. You know, he, he knows how to use people the right way. And, uh, I mean, uh, Paul Merson was brilliant for us. Um, on, the, on the training pitch, he'd go, if he was in your team, oh, you'd have a nightmare because you're one player less, more or less. But during the matches, you know, he, he would... You pass, uh, put a pass in for our striker, and you could see the defender was trying to get it, and he was never ever going to get it. And striker was one on one straight through, and he had this sort of brilliance about him, even though he physically struggled a little bit because he wasn't, you know, or wasn't that fit anymore. Yeah. But his his uh, his talent and his technical ability was brilliant, and he was a genuine good guy. He was, yeah. you know, for the team, he was a really he. he Nobody, you, you couldn't really hate Paul, uh, Paul Merson. He was such a nice guy. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't think he was a regular at training, was he? I think Harry gave him a lot of leeway. And I think there was that, uh, that infamous story that he tells where he, he pretended to Harry that he was struggling with the gambling and the drink again and that he needed to go away uh, or he needed to go into uh, rehab again. And instead, he went to the Caribbean. And one of Harry's mates saw him and he came well, back bronzed. I mean, that's that's also Paul Merson. But the funny thing is, as a player, um, he was a team player, hmm. uh, even though you wouldn't think that if you hear this story. But uh, And, you know, during the match, he could turn things around for us. So hmm. I didn't mind doing some extra dirty work because he wouldn't track back, uh, because he, on the other side, would hurt them. Um, yeah. And... and Harry knew that, and he, you know, he'd, he'd give you a pat on the back and he'd give you a little stroke if you needed it. Mm. Uh, and people like me would use their sort of skills. And for me, it was always pretty, uh, pretty tough in a way what he wanted from me. Uh, mm. Very clear. If I crossed the halfway line, he would go mad. Organize your defense. <laughs> yes, Harry. Um, you know, he, he, he knew exactly what he wanted from people. And uh, yeah, it was funny because. When you win, everything feels easy, you know, and, and you take it on the chin if, if Paul Merson doesn't turn up on training and you don't really mind as long as you keep winning. Yeah. And that's our season. We kept winning, whatever. Yeah. And he was very clever picking or bringing in that calibre of player, wasn't he, just to make things tick? Because the following season, Merce left and you got yeah. Teddy Sheringham in, didn't you? Yeah, and he, he did an amazing job as well. Mm. There was another one. And Teddy was, yeah, Teddy was obviously fitter. Um, and he was he was a bit more involved with the team more than Paul in that way. Um, Teddy was still somebody who every game wanted to win every single game. Mm. Uh, Paul 
training session, if he'd lose or win the game, he didn't really care. Um, but Teddy was still a, a proper player who wanted to win every single match. Uh, and what, what he does well, Harry, he, um, I don't know what he told them, um, but they were really good to the team as well. Even though they had a status of being a superstar in England, um, you wouldn't say so if you were in a dressing room with them. They were just one of the guys. Hmm. Oh, no, that's good to hear. And, and going back into the Premier League, I think you'd had five years away and you'd only had one season. Psychologically, was that uh, difficult? Were you, were you unsure about whether you could cut it? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, and it, it, the start of the season, uh, it wasn't looking like I was going to be in the team. Uh, in the pre-season, uh, he played Hayden Fox in my position. Uh, and we had Gianluca Vesta, Italian guy from, uh, who played at AC Milan and been at Chelsea. And so, um, yeah, I was, I was doubting if I could make the team. But then again, you know, there was a, an injury and I had to play left back. And I did that, that well that he struggled to leave me out of the team the next match. So he played me centre-half instead of Hayden Fox, who had a slight injury. Um, and, it, you know, it's one of them... Um, I've been lucky enough. If I got the chance, I grabbed it. Uh, mm. And sometimes you have to be a bit lucky. Obviously, uh, you also have to. It's a bit of pressure on it, uh, and I turned to love that pressure. Um, it got sort of the best out of me. I mm. made sure I was ready for it. I thought, well, if I get a chance, I'm going to have to grab it. Um, and, and did you also? Did you always make sure you were as fit as everyone else as well, so no one could throw that he's too old kind of accusation as an excuse to get you out? Yeah, I, but I never felt old uh, because I started quite late. Mm. Um, I, maybe I, I saved some kilometers, some, some miles in my legs uh, because I didn't go through the academy and I didn't play the ridiculous amounts of games the kids play. Um, I felt really young still in the game. Uh, and I was a bit older. I was a bit more level-headed than a younger player, but I could still run with the young kids. Mm. Um, yeah, I sort of... Maybe I'm matured late, like, I don't know, but it, it still, it doesn't go away. I always have this thing about doing one more than the other guy. Yeah. Uh, even now I'm, I'm doing sort of CrossFit and that kind of stuff to stay fit. Yeah. Um, and if the guy next to me does 10 rounds, I'll do 11, whatever. Um, it's sort of, it doesn't leave me. Um, and I had that when I was playing football, you know, I always wanted to be a little bit better than the guy next to me. Um, yeah or a little bit tougher, or a little bit, run a little bit further. Um, and it helps you. Uh, yeah. It gets you a long way, let me put it that way. I'm exactly the same when I'm in the gym or still trying to play on a Saturday afternoon. You've got to carry on competing. Yeah, well, you know, people say, ah, oh, you're mad, uh, let it go. And it, it's, I can't let it go. It, it gives me too much satisfaction if it does, uh, yeah. if it can make it. And, I'm a little bit better now accepting that there is a chance that you might lose a game every once in a while. Yeah. At that stage, I hated losing. Yeah. I really did. Well, you mentioned words there like satisfaction and maturity and hating losing. What does the name El Haji Juf bring? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if yeah. you had to be very mature to deal with that incident, I think, in yeah, 2004. It, it, I think the only way why I reacted that way was because all the stuff that happened around it. Mm. Um, Harriet Redknapp had gone by that stage. Uh, we were sort of up against it in the Premiership. Uh, we got a new manager. 
who couldn't speak the language uh, and he sort of took me apart as a skipper and he said to me, listen, uh, I need you to, you know, lead the team and all that. And uh, I felt very responsible for the result and for the performance of the team and everything. Uh, and I'd scored the only goal of the game. And then 10 minutes ago, he does that, maybe a little bit more. But somehow, somewhere inside me, I thought, if I'm going to hit him now, I'm going to get sent off. And we might lose this game. And we really need to win this game for the points yeah. to avoid relegation. Um, and something just clicked. And I thought, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of hold it in me. I'm not going to react. I'm obviously going to be upset. Mm. But I'm not going to get sent off because that's what he wants. I'm not yeah. going to give him the satisfaction. Um, yeah. Turned out that <laughs> uh, it impressed a lot of people because I, I still, to this day, get reactions on this incident. Mm. Uh, not long ago, I was on the airport in Schiphol and somebody approached me and was a teacher and he said, oh, I use you as an example for the kids. There is a way you can turn the other cheek. Yeah. Um, and it sort of made me realize, God, yeah, I, I never really thought about it at that time. And uh, eventually, it, it was the best thing I could have done. Yeah. Um, even though sometimes you wish that you'd land him one straight away. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think people were impressed with your restraint and self-control because he has got form for spitting at people, you know. Did he ever apologise? Uh, no. No? No. No, I played against him uh, after that uh, twice. I never apologised, no. No, I, I don't think I've any, ever heard anyone say a good word about him, but, you know, there we go. No, well, the, the funny thing, we played him at Portsmouth and uh, even my own team was saying, oh, we'll get him for you. And we're like, well, as long as you don't get sent off, I don't want you to get sent off on my account. And, uh, yeah, but it, it's just, yeah, what can I say? Let me put it this way, a horrible person. I, I don't have any of all the words for it. Yeah. Uh, if he'd apologised, I might have forgiven him at one stage, but... He had two chances, never did. Um, yes. Sixteen years on, it might be a slightly uh, hollow apology, but no. Yeah, I don't think it will ever come, and I'm, I'm no value in it anymore now. So. <laughs> well, Portsmouth fans loved you. You know, in fact, all the clubs you've been at, the fans have really taken to you. But you mentioned, I think it was Alan Perrin who came in. Was there a big row that led to you leaving? Was there a big difference of opinion? Or it's the only time I've actually had a proper row with the gaffer. Uh, obviously, you know, in different clubs, you, you do have misunderstandings with the manager or, or you think that you might have to play another way. But um, with Alan Perrin, it just from day one, it just never clicked. Uh, the man never looks you in the eyes when he talks to you. Um, he, he never played me. He, he told me constantly, oh, you're important, you're my skipper, you're the leader of the team. He would never play me. So during the preseason, you know, first game, second game, third game, I think, hmm. so I went to him a few times. And listen, you know, it's great to be important for the team, but it'd be even better if you actually play me. And I can actually show you that I'm important for the team. Um, and in, in the background, I heard he was working on a, a young French, uh, Saint-Ralph, to bring in. Um, so I confronted him with that and he denied it. Well, I clearly knew he was trying to. Um, so I, it never sort of we never we never saw eye to eye, uh, but he he still wouldn't play me. And then he played me three minutes in a in a friendly match, and in them three minutes I actually scored. 
So the next game, he didn't start me again. Uh, and then we played, I believe, a big club, AC Milan or something. And in pre-season, and he gave me the last five minutes of the game and let me warm up the whole second half. And then so I was getting quite annoyed. Um, and eventually, and, you know, it was one of the things I spoke to the chairman. And I said, listen, you know, it's not going to work this. Uh, not for me. He says, well, I can't, I can't let you go. You're, you're skipper of the team. So, well, if he's not going to play me, I'm, I'm, what, 35 by then. You know, I played in the Premiership last season. I still want to play in the Premiership. Uh, so, if he's not going to play me, give me a chance to go somewhere else. Um, and then he said, okay, well, I have to stick by the gaffer. So, you can go. Um, and then within an hour, Paul Jewell rang up. Um, so, the word spread, apparently. Uh, but then he refused to let me go. The manager, well, the chairman had already said you can go. Um, he refused to sign the paperwork. So to stop me from playing the first, the season's opener for, for Wigan. And that really pissed me off. Um, so we did have a proper row when I called him a French frog and all sorts. Uh, a few other words which I can't repeat on, on air. Um, and we, we really... Um, I made sure he signed the paper, let me put it that way. Uh, which he eventually did. And then, but I wasn't allowed to say goodbye to the team and I wasn't allowed to, to stay in the premises. I was escorted out by the, yeah. by the security. It, it was just a farce. So I didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to the lads and all that. It was ridiculous. Yeah. That's how football works. But to force him to sign, if you use a future detective move, the old arm up the back. <laughs> well, it, it turned out to be a, a sort of standoff. Uh, but he realised, uh, looking into my eyes, that I was pretty serious, I think. Um, <laughs> now, I, you know, it, 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 I never, I didn't like it. Um, I always got on with all the managers and... Uh, I understand that, you know, as a player, the, the team is bigger than you and the manager has his own views about players. Uh, but he was somehow just blocking my, uh, everything I wanted, he was blocking it. Uh, and he wasn't giving me a chance to go somewhere else. And uh, yeah, it's a shame. It's not the way I wanted to leave Portsmouth, that's for sure. Yeah. It's like these abusive boyfriends you hear about who finish with their partners but don't want them to see anyone else. Yeah, a little bit like that, yeah. A little bit childish, yeah. Um, yeah. I did warn the manager, uh, the, the the chairman, like, you know, it's never going to work with this guy. Um, yeah. Well, it ended up being a fairy tale Indian summer going back to Wigan, didn't it? I think 2006, League Cup semi-final. You missed the semi-final against Arsenal the second leg, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. But Jason Robertson done a little bit of work for back in the day. He nicked a late goal, didn't you? Then... All no, it did, it did nick a few goals for us that season anyway. It did. Yeah, it did well for us. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden you're captain in the team. I think it was the Millennium Stadium back then, 2000, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't... It was... Um, Sorry, is someone hammering? Nah. Uh, my, my, my partner's just walked in. She's opening a box, uh, a present that's been sent for Christmas. It's so apologies, I didn't realise you'd hear it that much. She's now going like that in the background. It sounded like someone was hammering something. Is that just cardboard and sell it? cardboard ripping it open. <laughs> she's desperate to get to it. No, no, no she's looking at me going, oh, sorry. We're all buying too many things on Amazon. That's what it is. <laughs> Online shopping is the word nowadays with Corona. So yeah, oh, no. boxes galore. 
Exactly, exactly. But sorry, League Cup, League yeah. Cup final, 2006. It was against Manchester United, wasn't it? Yeah. in the team, glorious occasion. Yeah, they, they sort of, you know, it was one of one of the many big finals they played uh, mm. for Wigan. This was the biggest final that ever played, uh, ever played. Uh, you know, we had uh, meters high banners of players around the stadium, and uh, you come into the stadium. Before the the whole event, the chairman decided to to get us all new suits, but then refused to buy us the shoes. And then eventually we got the shoes, but they they were ordered late, so they weren't big enough. So some players had blisters on their feet before they had to play because the shoes were too small. It was just you know amateurs fee pros. Uh, we walked out onto the pitch with the fireworks, and we were in awe of the, of the surrounding. And they just walked out like it was another final. Um, yeah, looking back in hindsight, they were always going to win that. Uh, yeah, but, but you, were, you, you had a great spirit in that team. You were always we a did. team that was going to have a go. Oh, we certainly believed we could win it. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's only looking back in hindsight. But mm. at the time, we were going to go for it. And uh, we did have a great spirit. And we, we tried to make it a, a good game. We, we sort of fell one back, uh, sort of... A, unlucky sort of scrimmagey uh, goal from Wayne Rooney where I myself and another lad sort of hit the ball between us and it fell it's straight off in the run of Wayne Rooney who just carried on with it and scored yeah. I'm like mm, not the luckiest moment of the day um, yeah. but we gave it a go and we tried and even though we lost we, we still felt like we'd given it all um, but uh, yeah we just weren't good enough on the day well, I read the match report for that game again yesterday, and they said it was a mix-up between you and Pascal Chimbonda. But then I watched not it, and no. it was definitely Pascal Chimbonda's fault. I'm not just saying that. You know, you could have cleared that ball, but I could go. have cleared it better. Let me put it that way. And um, in the right direction. Yeah. Well, there you go. So uh, it wasn't my proudest moment, but then again, it comes with the territory. Yeah. Yeah. But I know you were disappointed, but I think you got the, got the lads to sign the shirt for you, didn't you? Did you manage to get it framed and up on your wall? And yes. That was your intention? Yes, I did. I did. I still have that shirt. And, it, you know, it's a, I've kept a few. Uh, most of it I've given away by now to auctions and charities and all that. Uh, and I've kept a few. And this is one of the, the shirts I've kept because, you know, there's not that many chances you get in your career. And especially when you finish it, you realise how few chances you get in your career. It's one of the things that Teddy Sheringham used to say at Portsmouth, you know, when, you, when you're on your way to a final, uh, you think, oh, unlucky, next year we'll get another chance. But you only realise later on that there's only so many chances you get in your own career. Mm. So if you get the chance, it's something to die for sort of thing. Yeah. And he wasn't wrong because uh, I think for me, that was the biggest final of my career. Yeah, yeah. No, and it was a great occasion. And I think a lot of fans remember that tackle that you made on Cristiano Ronaldo later that season. I think it's known as a reducer. It had to do with that game uh, in Cardiff because he, um, he took the mickey out of uh, Leighton Baines, who was still a young kid then. And Leighton had already got a yellow card and he sort of pretended to go past him and then pulled back and then upped the ball and, and kept it up on two feet. So, you know, sort of disrespecting him a little bit. And uh, it set some bad blood with me. Uh, and we played them three weeks later at home. And it, there was a ball going down the side of Leighton and he 
sort of gone behind late and, and I, I could easily get it really before he was there. And I just held my pace a little bit, thinking, right, this is my chance. And it was, it was a good hit. Um, and I've sort of said, to him, listen, this is what you get if you disrespect other players. I'm not sure if he understood a word I said at that time, but uh, um, Gary Neville came over and he said, yeah, serves him right. So anyway, hopefully I've helped uh, giving him an English education. Yes. Well, this isn't very popular to say anymore, but I'm a big, big fan of Tony Blair. Do you think it may have been that Cristiano Ronaldo incident that ensured that you became his favourite player? I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit of a surprise for me, but uh, the reasons why he picked me, I felt very pleased. Let me put yeah. it that way. Uh, as, a, as a team player, always going sort of ahead in, in battle and uh, the kind of stuff. And it made me feel very proud. Uh, and I, I have to say, um, maybe England will be better off with Tony Blair still in charge because at the moment it's chaos. Mm. Absolutely. But I'm not politically biased, but um, as a person, I thought he was, uh, he was more genuine than what I see now. Let me put it that way. Couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, but finally on Wigan, you must be so proud to be named their greatest ever player. So how tough is it to see their current plight at the moment? Yeah. The, the funny thing is, it's happened to Barnsley as well. I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day and he's gone, every club you've been have either gone into bankruptcy or... or into liquidation. What's going on there? I'm like, mm, oh, All the yeah. way did you take in, Eric? Uh, you know, it wasn't, certainly wasn't that. <laughs> I should have done better that way. <laughs> no, it, yeah, it pains me to see, obviously. And um, I feel really bad about it for David Whelan as well. I mean, if you saw, it was his life's work, it's sort of icing on the cake, you know, build a massive empire in sports chain. And then um, his favorite team and the team that made the town proud to get him into the Premiership and now to see where they are. Mm. Uh, since he's pulled his hands off it, it's just gone from worse to worse. Yeah. Besides the, the result the other day, the great result the other day, so who knows? There might be some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, yeah, that was very unexpected, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But obviously, they have to sort that financial stuff out at the moment and hopefully it can be sorted out. I heard that Mr. Whelan has said, well, they, he's not going to let him uh, go bankrupt. Mm. Don't know what it means. Um, uh, I hope they don't. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned Coventry. They've also had their problems. That's where you kind of finished your career. But as yeah. well equipped as you were for a post-football future, when you did have to retire, how difficult was it even for you to break free from that football bubble? Yeah, I thought it wouldn't be so hard because obviously I had a study behind me and I thought, well, I'll try and get back into medicine. Um, eventually didn't, obviously, choose another path, but uh, that was the first in my mind. Uh, but the, every day going to the club um, sort of turns into a pattern, you know, 13 years, 15 years in a row, you go to the football club every day, you train with the lads, you have the banter in the dressing room, uh, and you work towards a goal every well, in England, twice a week, because you usually play twice a week. Um, you know, you have, you have your new goal, the, the next game. Uh, and it's, it's great. It's addictive. Um, 
And when you all of a sudden you finish and there's no goal to, to go for, uh, you think, well, I sort of took a year out thinking what, what's going to be my next move. In the meantime, picked up the studying a bit again. And, uh, but it was all, it felt a bit aimless. Uh, and I think that was the hardest part. And I missed, I missed the uh, camaraderie that you have, uh, you know, as a team. Um, so, yeah, it, it was harder than I thought. And uh, I think it eventually also was part of why I ended up uh, breaking up in my relationship, like nearly every ex-football player does nowadays, I think. Um, and I think that's part of it. It certainly is one of the things that help, doesn't help in your relationship. The statistics are scary with that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a very selfish game. Uh, when you're playing football, obviously, you tend, if you play a decent level, you tend to earn decent money. Uh, you have a sort of a status, uh, status as a football player. Um, and football is everything. You know, you plan your holidays around football. If the gaffer says you have a day off, you have a day off. If he says you're in, you're in. You know, and the wife or the girlfriend has to sort out her life because football's first. Yeah. Uh, and then when, when you finish that, uh, you go back to family life where you try, tend to share things a bit more. Uh, it's not as easy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure there's plenty of players, ex-players listening to this who will certainly identify with that. But you, you mentioned how tough it was to leave football. So why didn't you take that coaching job with your old mate Roberto Martinez at Swansea then? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I sometimes think, God, that was an opportunity. Uh, it was for me, I'd, I'd uh, picked up an injury at Wigan in my last season I was there. And uh, I played with an injection because I'd broken a toe. And it turned out that the injection had the adverse effect on uh, another little bone in my foot and it sort of deteriorated really fast. Mm. Uh, and it kept me out for like three, three and a half months. So at the end of the season, I was finally fit again. And it just felt like I needed another season to, mm. to sort of end my career playing football instead of in the physio room. Mm. Um, so when I got the opportunity to go to Coventry with Ian Dowie, we had good plans there. Um, I thought, well, I'll give it a go. One more season, just, you know, go for it. Playing every game and then, then I can finish and think, right, I've had a good end to my career. And Roberto came at the start of that season with a question, would I fancy maybe joining him at Swansea as an assistant? Uh, and I said, it's too early for me. I, I want to play a bit more football. Uh, but then again, at Coventry, I didn't play much football. <laughs> but I, mean, I didn't know that at the time, obviously. Um, after I signed at Coventry, um, about three hours later, it turned out that the club were nearly bankrupt. Uh, so that was a bit of a false start. Yeah. Uh, and eventually things were went really well in pre-season. I, I looked really, really fit. I could run with all the young kids uh, at the front of the group. No problems. And then um, got injured uh, the last friendly league game of the season. Or last training session before the, the season kicked off. Wow. Torn a, a knee ligament and that took quite a while. And by the time I got back, things weren't looking up. You know, the bankruptcy was... Um, yeah, I was nearly there and, and Ian didn't have any chance to get any more players. And, you know, there was, there was no investment in the club anymore. Mm. Uh, they were trying to cut corners everywhere and if they could sell a player, they would. Uh, mm. And Ian had to go, a new manager came in and uh, that was the end of it. Yeah. yeah. No, it's been, been a bit of a shambles ever since, really, in terms of not being able to get back into a settled home and 
Yeah, well, hopefully they, they can do okay in the championship. I've got friends in the area. But if you fast forward then a couple of years from those final appearances, I think most people would have expected you to get back into your medical studies. What was the inspiration for moving into detective work? I'm fascinated by this. Well, it, um, obviously I did, I did sort of my, uh, um, how do you say this, uh, my exams for, for the medicine. And then in Holland, you need two years of, of practical exams uh, in-house, so in, the, in the hospital. Uh, and to do that, I had to sit some exams again, all over again, to prove to them that I still had the knowledge. Hmm. Uh, so I studied for that quite hard for a few months and then did the exams and passed them. But in the main, meantime, um, this opportunity came along to go and work for the police. They wanted to get higher educated people in the police force. Um, and they actually preferred people that had another career before because they were a bit more balanced in life. Hmm. Um, so I thought, well, I'll just start the, uh, the sort of solicitation progress, I don't know how you call this in England, um, where you sort of uh, selection process for the job. Uh, and it was a selection process that lasted a couple of months uh, with all sorts of role plays and psychological interviews and all that. Um, and then at one moment I sort of could choose. I could either go back in medicine because I passed my exams or I could get accepted by the Dutch police force because I passed the, uh, the test. Mm. Um, so I sat down with some old ex-students of mine where I, who I used to go to college with uh, and asked them, what would you do? I was 39 and, uh, and all three said, you'd be crazy to go back into medicine, right? You'd be working long, long hours, 60, 70, 80 hours a week in hospital. You would hardly see daylight. Uh, you'd hardly be home because you're like a slave to them the first two years, especially because mm -hmm. you're sort of the apprentice. Um, and after that, if you're lucky enough to find a place for specialization in, in the direction you want to, and I would, I'd like, my preferences were infectious diseases and sports medicine, and there were hardly any specialization places. Hmm. You'd be lucky to be finished with the educational part within eight to 10 years. Um, so you'd be mad not to go and join the police force. Hmm. All three of them said that, and I'm, hmm. <laughs> That was a bit, I didn't expect that actually. Um, but I eventually made up my mind. I thought, well, it's a bit like, a, um, you know, when you're a kid and uh, you're writing a book about your life, if there's a few things, you know, you might fancy. One's becoming a fighter pilot or a professional footballer or be a policeman. Well, at, at least in my book. Uh, and I thought, oh, you know, it could be quite interesting. And, yeah. Well, I must admit, when I moved back from Singapore a couple of years ago, I wanted to do something similar. And I looked at this fast track scheme with the police where you could become a detective. But I was warned by a copper friend of mine that these fast track recruits aren't looked upon too favourably by officers nope. who've gone down the more traditional, long-winded route of becoming a detective. So did you, I didn't end up doing it, obviously, but did you get that similar pushback in Holland or? We were warned uh, that we would get treated by the more established guys by like, you know, like they used to say in football, you know, you have to work your way up through apprenticeship and be a boot boy and then you get a chance to go in the first team. Hmm. Um, and they were looking upon you like that. Uh, but the funny thing was they also realized that, uh, you know, we weren't daft. Uh, 
most of us had a higher, higher education and we, you know, we were capable of uh, more things than they expected sort of thing. Mm. Even though a lot of things were new, you could pick it up very quickly. Um, and we were often better at forming sort of coalitions with other partners, uh, people from outside the police force, uh, people who work for the environment or the, or the council. Um, so when, when you want to get things done in a broader perspective, uh, it helps if you're good at forming alliances and coalitions and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and we tended to be a bit more uh, sensitive to that kind of stuff. So they, yeah, it's funny because now I do the work that um, seasoned police officers do after many, many, and I've only been at the police for now since 2010. Mm. And that's short for a police. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I do the work that very experienced policemen do, sort of thing, and I'm not looked upon it anymore. But once they see that you, you can do the job uh, and that it's beneficial to the job, they sort of accept you. But it, it took took a little while, it took a thick skin, as they say, initially, hmm. to um, to deal with the criticism and the skepticism. Yeah. Well, and I think you've specialised in forensic detective work but presumably you would have had to do more generic broad detective work in your training first few years well um because of my medical studies they said it probably suits you best to go into forensics mm. um, i did look at that i did a little bit of a specialization into it and uh, eventually turned back to the path of more broader uh, tactical uh, investigation so i'm now involved in tactical investigations and not so much forensics. Mm. Uh, I do have a lot of contact with forensics. Uh, like this morning I had three uh, bodies um, suspect of a crime or not. And it's my job as a liaison of the, of the detectives to go there and, and look at the scenarios and decide, is it, uh, is it an offense? Is, is there a crime committee here? or is it a natural cause of death or a suicide or an accident, that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm more in the technical field now. Wow. And it's, it's good, it's interesting. Uh, I see a different side of life. Uh, as a footballer, you only see the, uh, um, the side where you get people adoring you as a, as a player and a bit over the top maybe, but you know, looking up at, yeah, as a football player, who earns good money, lives the life that we want to live. And as a policeman, you see the other side of the, uh, of the medal. Uh, yeah. You see, you know, the life of people get born into a family where their only option is to become a criminal, really. Hmm. So it gives you a perspective of life, definitely. Hey. Totally. I mean, I'm fascinated by detective work and, and forensics and how you solve crimes. What was it like attending your first kind of really difficult crime scene, you know, stomach churning crime scenes. Uh, yeah, it, you rely upon people that have done it before, let me put it that way. Mm. Uh, the first time you're in charge of a, 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 a PD, how do you call that? Um, crime incident, I don't know the, the English word for it, um, where you come to a place where there's been a crime committed and you have to look at what's happened here, who's done it, um, how has he done it, why has he done it, that kind of stuff. 
Mm. Uh, the first time you get there and you see your body laying there in blood and yeah, you have to take a couple of breaths and you go, God, where do I start? <laughs> who do I have to call and who do I need? And, um, yeah. But there's always somebody that, you know, helps you on your way and uh, eventually uh, you sort of turn back to what you've been taught and uh, mm. yeah, make the best of it. Yeah. And, uh, the one thing I always thought, you know, there's no harm in making mistakes as long as you learn from it. That's, mm. that's the model, you know, obviously you try and avoid making mistakes, but everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. You may sometimes make a decision that if you look back at it, you could have made another one. But at the time it felt the right, the right decision. Uh, mm. So as long as I sort of learn, keep learning from my mistakes, I'm developing. Yeah, yeah. Well, Funnily enough, I'm, I'm working with some ex-Premier League players, um, Brian Dean, Andy Cole, Michael Thomas, Mark McGee, some of, some of these guys, and they're taking educational programmes and leadership programmes, and, and they're talking about how football has more transferable skills into corporate and other employment environments yeah. than what they're given credit for. And I suppose you go into that crime scene you're taking on a captaincy role and, and you're organizing your, your troops and you're staying calm. Yeah, there, there's, there, well, there is a lot of comparison uh, in a way to, uh, to being part of a football team, uh, going towards that goal to try and achieve win, first win the game, but you know, have your broader perspective about how you're going to end up as high as you want in the league and how you're going to um, you deal with setbacks. Uh, and people with different opinions. Um, a lot of it comes back into the real world, let me put it that way. Yeah. Mm. Is your new job as difficult or even more difficult to switch off from when you leave the place of work? Uh, mm. Mm, more, more difficult, I think. Um, in a way, sometimes, you know, especially when there's, there's a lot of pressure on, uh, on, on getting forward in an investigation, mm. uh, organizing everything and um, sort of trying to keep everybody with their minds going in the right direction mm. uh, without deviating from the path. Uh, I think it costs more energy in, in the role I'm now. I mean, with football, that, that sort of felt like natural. Um, it's easier as a football team to be in the right direction because there's only one way. It's either win or lose. Mm. You go that way, you go that way. There's no in-between. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no uh, decisions about, um, well, you know, in investigations, there could be an investigation, uh, there could be a decision like, well, you can only achieve so much because you have so many people uh, on the job. Mm. With football, you have 11 players and, you know, if, if somebody's injured, you put another guy in and... Uh, mm. Yeah, I don't know. It's difficult to compare, but in a way, but football it felt much more easy to bear. Yeah. Um, you know, I used to look forward to games. It would be, I'd live up to a game the whole week. I'd look forward to the Saturday evening and, uh, you know, finally go out on the on the pitch to to get the job done. Yeah. That's probably the thing you miss most in the beginning. That tension that builds up all week towards the game. And then on Saturday, there's nothing when you finish. Then there's absolutely nothing. Yeah. But the tension is still building up, and, but there's no goal. Yeah. Uh, that was hard in the beginning. Yeah, no, no relief. I suppose another comparison is that you're still in a results-driven business. So what, what is it like when 
you suddenly get a confession or you suddenly get a hit on the DNA database when you've worked so hard on something. That is, um, it's very similar. Um, but there's always this thing, especially when you get a confession, did we get it in the right way? Um, are we certain we haven't missed the scenario where he's actually telling you did it, but he never did it uh, because he's trying to protect somebody else or we've put him under too much pressure in the interrogation that he feels he has no way to go but then to, to confess. Mm. Um, it's not as straightforward as a win in football, let me put it that way. Uh, you know, when the referee blows his whistle after 90 plus minutes and, and you scored one more than your opponent, you know you've won. Um, with the police investigations, there's always questions that stay, that stay open, uh, where you probably never get the answer to. Yeah. It's, there still, it's still a teamwork because, you know, the, the, you, you, when you get into an investigation, into a murder investigation or something like that, it's, it's a teamwork and it's very much uh, looked upon as a, as a team effort when you, when you get the result, when you get the guy who done it, confessing mm. that he did it. And, all evidence points towards it and the judge decides and agrees yeah um it feels like a victory then but still uh, not as straightforward as a football victory what's the process like or the experience like when you're having to give evidence in court against the suspect i have never had to do that yet so uh no in, in holland that's not very common let me put it that way okay. um it does happen but very rare that police officers are asked in court for their statement. Very rare, yeah. Okay. Is there a, particularly, uh, a particular case that has been really complex, that's been particularly satisfying to solve? Um, there's been more cases that haven't been solved. <laughs> no, no. No, yeah, yeah there is. Um, but like I said, it, it's funny that uh, I always thought, you know, there's criminals and there's good guys. Uh, but there's this massive gray area of people that have, they're actually really nice people, uh, but have committed a crime. And where you go, hmm, doesn't really match because I kind of like this guy. But then if I look at the evidence, he's done something that's kind of not so nice. Um, so it's not as black and white as it is in real life. Yeah. Uh, as it is in uh, in telly, in telly, where you have the usual suspect who is the bad guy, and then the police guy who is the good guy. Yeah. Um, there's there's a lot of people that you talk to, and that, like in interrogation and all that, and uh, looking at their background and the way they're brought up and, and the sort of environment they've sort of grew up on, grew grew up in. Um, yeah. You kind of think that they, you know, there's not been much choice for them but to go down this path, yeah. uh, and it makes it, uh, it makes you realise that, you know, we're all just people, and there's people that make bad decisions. There's also people that are just nasty. Uh, there's no way around it. Uh, but there's a lot of people that made bad decisions, uh, and tend to realise that once they've got caught. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not as black and white, let me put it that way. There, there's plenty of people that I would say, oh, you know, I'd love to get them behind bars. But uh, somehow it doesn't always solve everything. No. Uh, and and what's, what's Holland like in terms of recidivism rates? And, and are you just churning out 
people from prison to then quickly go back to crime and go back to prison? Or have you got more of a pathway to help offenders? Well, the, there, is, um, there is a lot of um, thought about, you know, a lot of thought gone into trying to help people, especially first time offenders, trying to make sure they don't get a, a sentence in jail, if you put it that way, because they don't tend to come out much better. Hmm. Um, and especially when they're young and they're sort of uh, easily influenced uh, to go into prison uh, with some hard timers doesn't really get a much them coming out that doesn't work really well for them no. um, there's a hard there's sort of two ways there's there's a hardcore group of criminals that tend to stick with it and won't do anything else mm. uh, and then there's a big group that uh, get drawn into it uh, and it'd be beneficial to try and draw them back out of it uh, and not get them going into prison after prison after prison because eventually they'll turn out just as bad as the other guys. Yeah. So there is a lot of um, um, money and effort going going into that, trying to keep people to lure them back on the right path, let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, but to be fair, the, the, the tactical department where I work tend to deal with the bigger cases hmm. uh, and you do tend to besides the sort of crime passionel sort of incidents where people kill each other within a relationship out of emotional differences and that kind of stuff um, there's also um, investigation into bigger criminals uh, who do not change their way of life let me put it that way um, yeah so it is satisfactory to get them behind bars let me put it that way absolutely yes and you mentioned tv detectives you look like the archetypal tv detective i can see a drama based on you without any shadow of a doubt but are these tv detective shows in any way real have you got a favorite where you think that's that's bang on that well the one the american ones are certainly no nowhere near real because these detectives tend to do the interrogation they do the arrests uh with people that they're sort of like the um the armed policemen like you have in london the swat teams and that kind of stuff but they also do the forensics they also do the interrogations they also do the you know the the, the tactical plans and that kind of stuff it's it doesn't work like that, but you know, there, there's so much special, specialized, specialized people within the field. If you, if you do forensics, that's such a big job. Um, there's no way you're going to do the interrogation as well. Uh, and the people that do, do the interrogation are more the tactical people. There's no way they're going to do the, the SWAT as well. They're not, they're not built like tanks and they don't carry machine guns with them and all that. Mm. Um, the Scandinavian ones uh, are a little bit more uh, real, yeah. but then again, even there, you know, it's a, obviously on TV, it's all romanticized. Uh, in real life, it takes a lot longer. It's a lot harder work. Um, <laughs> maybe not longer hours, but on TV, they tend to work day and night. Um, it, it, you do get a feeling sometimes you do, but uh, generally we, we don't. Um, yeah. But it's, it's not as easy to solve a crime as it looks on TV, let me put it that way. Nowhere near. I wish it was. I might stick to just the documentaries from now on then. Uh, <laughs> and just finally then, are you still playing for the Dutch police team or have you hung the boots up for good now? 
Yes, I've hung them up. Uh, I only do the occasional uh, charity game and that kind of stuff. Uh, oh, uh, I felt it was the right time. There were some younger guys and yeah, you know, I was playing, but I wasn't too pleased with my own game anymore. Uh, I thought it's time to make way. Um, I have started doing like my coaching badges because somehow, you know, when I finished playing, I loved playing on the pitch. I loved training and I loved sort of working myself into a sweat every game and every, every training session. Um, and I thought if I really want to get rid of that football bug, I can't hang around and try and become a manager because it would be nowhere near as satisfying as it will be as a player. So I decided to just get away from it all, do the police work. Um, and only the, the last few years started coaching a bit with my daughter's hockey team. Mm. Uh, and then I chair somebody said, oh, listen, you seem to enjoy it. You fancy doing a coaching badge in hockey, field hockey. Uh, because we're looking for some uh, support in managers and all that. And uh, So I did that and really enjoyed it. I thought, hmm, it's a bit weird, me getting my field hockey coaching badges while I'm an ex-football player. Um, so I talked to my partner and I said, listen, I'll do the first badge that you can do. You wait for sea lies and see how I like it. And then yeah. we'll take it from there. I did that and uh, enjoyed it. And did my second one. And now I'm uh, a manager of the non-league team here in, uh, in Holland. Uh, I enjoy it. It's my first season as a head coach. And uh, yeah, it's funny. Uh, as a player, you never have to think about football too much. You just get on the field, do your thing. You obviously think about the game yeah. from a player's perspective. Well, you're a manager, it's a whole different ball game. <laughs> Trying to think about the, the goal setting of every, every uh, session we do, uh, see how it matches my vision of football and how it matches my long-term um, prognosis and that kind of stuff. It's a new challenge. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It takes up a lot of time, but, uh, but I enjoy it. So uh, we'll see how far it brings me, let me put it that way. Well, I only managed the team for one season or six months when I was injured, and I found that the highs were higher, but the lows were lower. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, to be fair, the funny thing is, well, as a player, you can actually influence the result yourself on the pitch. Uh, yeah. As a manager, once you've done your thing, they're out there doing their thing. And there's not much you can do once it's go pear-shaped. Yeah. You know, you can, you can try and adjust the half-time. You can try and adjust a little bit during the game. Yeah. But, yeah, if your team hasn't got it that day... Um, it's not much you can do about it, and that is annoying. That is really annoying. Yeah. I agree with that one. <laughs> Indeed. Well, it sounds like you're very, very busy in retirement anyway. So, it's been an absolute pleasure, Arjan. Or are you still, do you still get called Ari? Um, no. In, in Holland, Juan Arjan. Um, it was only because uh, they couldn't pronounce my name properly. There was Harry and Chester and Doc and all sorts. So. Oh, well, it must be nice to be back home, but thanks ever so much. Honestly, I've really appreciated it. It's been fascinating. It's been good to talk to you. It's been nice, uh, reminiscing about the old days. It's always nice. The Phoenix Sport and Media Group provide honest and trustworthy professional advice and business solutions to the sports and media industry. For more information, visit www psm-group.co.uk